Good morning. Uh, today's one of the days where I'm preaching here and at our other congregation down on Ashley Road. So once I finish speaking here, I'll be disappearing out the door to head down there. So you know that's where I've gone. Um, before I get into today's message, I'd just like us to pray together about something happening this week. On Thursday, we have local council elections happening. Actually, this building is being used as a polling station for the first time. Um, and it'd be great for us to pray into that. The Word of God instructs us to pray for those in authority. And it'd be good for us to do that this morning. Uh, week before last, I and for other local church leaders met with Graham Farrant, who's the new chief exec of the new BCP Council. Uh, he's like, uh, in effect, the um, chief civil servant. So he enacts everything which the council has decided. He's got a huge budget he's responsible for and a huge number of people who are employed by the council which was the three councils, and he's got a massive task. He is very positive towards us as the churches, so it'd be great to pray for him and his role, and to pray that as uh, councillors are elected this Thursday, that somehow God guides that process. There's a big change for us in our town, because the three towns, Bournemouth, Christchurch, and Poole, are being merged into this one super council. Some of you might think that's a great idea, others of you might think that's a terrible idea, probably lots of you haven't got any idea about it at all. <laughs> But uh, there are 400,000 of us living in the BCP area, city region as it's now being called, and um, the councillors who are elected will have significant impact. We always think everything at the moment seems to be about Brexit, but this election is not about Brexit, it's about local issues. This is the real stuff about bins getting emptied, about provision for children's services, about social care, important stuff that affects us and our neighbours day by day. So uh, it's really important what happens on Thursday, so I'd urge you to get out and vote. And uh, I'd urge you to pray. There's a group of Christian leaders. We're going to be going down to the uh, council chamber in the Civic Centre on Tuesday morning to pray. And I'd encourage us this week to vote and to pray and ask that God would have his way across this uh, new BCP arrangement. Uh, the number of councillors has been significantly shrunk from 120 in the three existing councils to 72. And then those who are elected to have particular portfolios will carry real uh, weight in a region of 400,000 people, so we need to pray. Lord God, thank you so much that we live in a democracy and that we do get to vote and have a voice into these things. Lord, thank you for a sense of favor that uh, those of us who met with Graham Farrant felt from him week before last, how positive he was recognizing the massive impact that the church has in this region, the, the uh, millions of pounds worth of provision that, in effect, we provide across uh, our three towns. And Lord, I ask as there's this big change as Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul are joined into one city region administratively. I pray that, Lord, that somehow this would be good news. I pray that uh, the things which need to be done might be done better rather than worse. I pray that uh, provision for those in need in, across, across our region would, would be done better rather than less efficiently and effectively. Lord, I pray for the influence of your people, the church, that we would be able to have a positive contribution, that it would be seen by those in power that uh, we have a key role to play in uh, helping people and demonstrating the reality of God's compassion at work. Lord, I pray for those who get elected uh, this Thursday, that there would be men and women who are put into positions of authority who are committed to doing the best for this town, committed to serving and who somehow by your grace really do cause good things to happen in this place. Lord, pray for your blessing upon our town, across this city region, 
as we even struggle for the right terms to describe it. For BCP, Lord, we pray your blessing on us economically and uh, physically and spiritually, Lord. Pray your blessing on us and that uh, this Thursday, somehow your hand would be on the process and good will come out of it. In your name I ask it. Amen. Something that's been in the news quite a bit the last few days is Huawei. I'm never quite sure how to say the uh, Huawei, the Chinese massive tech conglomerate. And uh, it's a story about competing kingdoms, the kingdom of China and the kingdom of the United States and Europe and all the rest, trying to work out whether Huawei is good news or bad news. And it's a story about money, as billions and billions of pounds are involved in technological advances and secrecy, who's spying on who and how's all that working. And we are beginning a series today in a book of the Bible called Daniel, which uh, it's very similar in many ways. It's a, it's a book which is to do with competing political powers. It's a book which has all kinds of somewhat mysterious things in it. It's a book about global events. And some of the stories in the book of Daniel are very familiar. They're probably some of the most familiar Bible stories there are, even for those who know nothing about the Bible, because some of the stories have just become kind of uh, expressions that are used just in conversations. So we talk about somebody having feet of clay, or we talk about an experience being like a fiery furnace, or we talk about being thrown to the lions. And each of those are actually stories out of the book of Daniel, which just kind of entered our, uh, our, 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 kind of our, our language and the way that we talk. Now, there's these great stories, familiar stories, Daniel in the den of lions and all this kind of stuff, and the fiery furnace. But then you get halfway through Daniel, you get to Daniel chapter 6, it's all been pretty straightforward and pretty clear, and then you get to Daniel 7, and to be honest, it just gets weird. And a few months back, in our, those of us doing community Bible reading, we were reading Daniel together, and everybody was enjoying Daniel chapters 1 to Daniel chapter 6, and then they got to Daniel chapter 7, and people were saying, what on earth is this about, and how are we meant to read this? So at that time, talking about, about it as elders, we thought it would be a good idea to teach through Daniel to help us to understand how to read it and interpret it and apply it, and also to help us to understand and apply other parts of Scripture which are a bit like Daniel in terms of some of the symbolism and some of the stuff which just looks weird, how we deal with that. So last week, Easter Sunday, uh, Richard was teaching from Genesis to Revelation, giving an overview of the whole of the Bible. This morning, I'm going to give an overview of the whole of the book of Daniel. We're going to do a chapter 1 to 12, uh, skim through to help get a shape, and then over the next eight weeks, we'll dive deeper into it to uh, uh, try and mine out of it what God has for it, so, uh, for us. So I'm going to be drawing out some themes this morning, which we'll then dig into in the following weeks. So... Quite a tall task to try and get through the whole book this morning and make some sense of it. So it would be good to pray. So why don't we pray together? I'm going to pray a phrase, and I'd invite you to pray it out loud after me so we can all commit this to this together. Let's pray. King Jesus, Jesus. help me understand your word. For your glory and for our good. Amen. Okay, we're on page 884 in these Bibles. If you want to follow along as we go, let me read verse 1 of chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. People just like Rob Johnson. <laughs> now I looked at you and quickly moved on. <laughs> he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, standard university degree, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The story of Daniel opens with the city of Jerusalem under siege. Nebuchadnezzar, great king of the Babylonians, has come to Jerusalem put it to siege, and he turns Judah into a kind of a colony, into a vassal state, completely subject to him. And then a little while later, a few years later, he comes back to Jerusalem, and this time, rather than just besieging it, he raises it to the ground and destroys it. And uh, that story is told in 2 Kings 24 and 2 Chronicles 36. You can read that story in your leisure if you want to do so. And as Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and makes it subject to him and his empire, he takes some of the best people. This is part of his kind of political strategy from the different lands he conquers. He finds out who are the best people, are the smartest people, and he gets them and he brings them back to his city, to Babylon, so that they can strengthen his rule and his kingdom. And of those that Nebuchadnezzar brings back from Jerusalem to Babylon, these four men, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, are the, are the four who particularly shine as having the greatest ability, the greatest potential. Now, as we go through this, I want to draw out some major themes of the book, which, as I say, we'll aim to dig into over the next few weeks. And uh, the first major theme we need to see is that Daniel is written from the context of exile. Daniel and his friends are exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Daniel belongs to the people of God, but this story happens with him living in Babylon. And that wasn't a job move. He didn't go to Babylon in order to further his career prospects. There is actually horror in this story, which is kind of a bit missing from the introduction. But if you go back and read in Kings and Chronicles, you'll see some of the horror that Daniel and his friends were ripped from their homeland against their will forcibly and carried off as prisoners to Babylon. So, this is a horror story, really. This is a story about tyranny and oppression and a kind of slavery. And as the story goes on, we see that Daniel rises to the top of the Babylonian pile. He ends up in a position of real high authority and status. But despite that, he's still in many ways a captive. He's still living in exile. He's not there by free choice. He's been carried there as a prisoner. And for us who are Christians, those of us here this morning who know Jesus... It's important that we understand that we're in exile. The truth is that in Christ Jesus, who is Lord of all things, we possess the whole world. 
But the world as it now is, is not our home. We are, in effect, living in Babylon. And the danger for us is if we think that uh, we're, we're, we're living in Jerusalem. No, we're living in Babylon. We're living in a world which is hostile to the people of God and to God's purposes. Apostle Peter, in his first letter, he begins his letter like this, to God's elect, that's people chosen by God, God's people, exiles. Who are the people of God? We're exiles. We're living in Babylon. Jerusalem will come to earth, but at the moment we're living in Babylon. And part of the reason why it's worth studying the book of Daniel is that Daniel gives us a model for how to live as exiles. How do you live as a faithful citizen of the kingdom of heaven while you're living in hostile Babylon? Daniel gives us a model of how to do that. And while he's in captivity, while he's in exile, Daniel actually displays a remarkable kind of freedom that he's a captive, but he's the freest person you'll read about in the Bible, really. And that's because he remains true to God. There's something internal about him. Because he remains true to God, he doesn't live as a slave. He lives free, even though he's living in Babylon. And so there's some really important stuff for us to learn here about how we live in our world and our culture. Another major theme that we can draw straight from this is to see Daniel's integrity. It's a theme that runs throughout the book. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 1, it says that, Daniel and his friends were found to be 10 times better than all the other people who'd been brought to serve the king. And that's the story of Daniel. He's 10 times better than anybody else. And that comes not just from the fact that he was brilliant, which clearly he was, but it comes from his integrity that he is pure, absolutely pure in his devotion to God. And that then is displayed in everything he does and the way that he lives. Daniel lives against the flow. He doesn't just go with the flow. He doesn't yield. He doesn't bend. He does always what is absolutely right. And that means that he gets promoted because those in authority see his incredible integrity and so promote him. But it also means that he comes under all kinds of threats because his purity provokes hostility in others who don't like that. And so the story of Daniel is both a promotion and an attack. And that's a great model for how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in Babylon, that people should see the integrity of God in our lives, and that should mean that we get favor, but also means at times that we'll come under attack. That's exactly how it should be. And Daniel's integrity means that often he chooses the way of self-denial. In this first chapter of Daniel, the story is about him and his friends going through this three-year preparation period to be ready to serve the king. And part of that is you get fed the best food and wine that the kingdom has to offer. And Daniel and his friends say, we won't have that. We'll have a different diet. And the reason they do that is because they don't want to be polluted by food which has kind of been offered to idols and is, is kind of contaminated in that sense. They choose a different diet which doesn't look as good, but actually they end up fatter and healthier than anybody else because God blesses them because of their integrity. And this is an example to us of what it is to be a disciple. Being a disciple is about involves some self-denial. It's about taking up your cross. It's not your best life now. It's about being faithful while living in exile. And so the question for us, those of us who are Christians, is how are we doing living as faithful exiles? Are we living with the kind of integrity that Daniel did? Do we recognize that we're actually living in Babylon, not Jerusalem? And that calls for us to make some decisions about how we conduct ourselves. Get to the second chapter of Daniel, and King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And it's a dream that he wants to be interpreted, but he doesn't tell anybody what the dream is. And this is really tricky stuff. It's a weird dream he has. 
And uh, normally, normal principle is you'd say, well, this is what I had. Can you explain it? I had a really weird dream last night. I have lots of weird dreams. I had a dream that I... I, I probably shouldn't even tell you this. I dreamt that I gave birth to a baby. <laughs> How weird is that? I think it was probably because... Yesterday morning, I've been doing some teaching over at City Gate Church in Bournemouth, and a lot of it was about kind of reproductive ethics and stuff. So I think I was thinking a lot about babies, and I had this weird dream. I gave it was weird. Anyway, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but he won't tell them what it was about. And Daniel steps forward and says, O king, I serve the God who is able to reveal dreams. And this is a life or death scenario because Nebuchadnezzar has said, if my wise men, my enchanters, my astrologers, my magicians, if they can't tell me what the dream was and interpret it, I'm going to kill them all. And Daniel steps forward and says, the God I serve is able to reveal the dream and its meaning. And the dream is a vision of four kingdoms. And this is key to understanding the whole book of Daniel. Daniel begins in the year 625 BC, but prophetically it continues throughout the Babylonian Empire to the Roman Empire and down into our own day. And we'll unpack that as we go. And the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, dream he has, is of a statue. There's a little picture of it there. And this uh, statue has a head of gold, which represents the Babylonian Empire, which is the empire that Nebuchadnezzar rules. And then uh, a chest and arms of silver, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire, which came next. And then belly and thighs of bronze, which represents the Greek Empire, the Empire of Alexander the Great. And then legs of iron, which is the Roman Empire, and feet and toes of iron and clay, which is the era onwards. So we live in the era of the feet of iron and clay. And the major theme of this, the next major theme we see in the book, is that none of these kingdoms will stand against the kingdom of God. There's a rock that is carved out and which smashes the statue. And uh, that's the message. None of these kingdoms will stand against the kingdom of God. You, you could, in a sense, summarize the whole message of Daniel like this. God is king. What's the whole book about? That's what it's about. God is king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is king in Babylon, and he's fickle. And he has the power of life or death. He says, if my dream isn't interpreted, if you don't tell me what it was and you don't interpret it, I'm going to kill you, but it's God who's finally in charge. And so an application for us in this is to think about what is our prophetic sense of the kingdom of God? What do we grasp about the reality that there are all these earthly kingdoms, but there's a greater kingdom, and the kingdom of God is the kingdom which will actually fill the whole earth in the end? None of those kingdoms... Babylonian and the Medo-Persian, the Greek and the Roman kingdoms are already gone. We now live in an era of other kingdoms, the feet of clay. But all kingdoms will fall because the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will endure. Do you have a prophetic sense of the kingdom of which we're called to be a part? Get to chapter 3 and there's another statue. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't learnt his lesson he still thinks everything is about him. This isn't a dream of a statue. This is a statue that Nebuchadnezzar has built, puts up in public and says to everybody in his kingdom, worship the image that I have made. Puts a statue up, wants everybody to bow down and worship it because in doing that, they are in effect worshipping him and he thinks it's all about him. Now, Daniel doesn't feature in this chapter but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a reappearance. 
in the great story of the fiery furnace. And what we see in this story is their unbowed faithfulness to their gods. Perhaps one of the, the greatest statements of faith in gods is found in this chapter, Daniel 3, verse 17, where the king is about to throw them into the fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the king, God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down. It's just an awesome statement of trust in the sovereignty of God and faith in God. And so that's the next major theme to draw out of this book of Daniel, this resolute confidence in the sovereignty of God. An absolute confidence that God is king, which means that God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, if he chooses in his sovereignty not to save us, he's still king, and so we're going to keep on worshipping him, and we're not going to bow down to your idol, King Nebuchadnezzar, because you're a lesser power. You think it's all about you, but you need to get things in perspective. Actually, God is king, and you're very secondary to him. There's this incredible, resolute confidence in the sovereignty of God. And that kind of resolute confidence is how to live in exile. How are we going to live in a world which calls us to bow down to all kinds of different things, calls us to worship all kinds of different things? How are we going to live? The way, that you're only, the way you're going to make it is to stand in resolute confidence in the sovereignty of God. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship anything else. And God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship those things because God is still king. That's the way to live. In moments of crisis... Where is our confidence? Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to serve? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are crystal clear. Going to get thrown into a furnace? Yeah, but we're still going to serve God. Get to chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And this, this is a dream that scares him rigid. It's a dream about himself. And again, Daniel interprets the dream. And the dream is about Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, Lord of the Babylonian Empire, that he is going to experience a season of insanity. He's going to lose his mind, and he's going to lose his kingdom for a time. And the point of this is that pride comes before a fall, and humility before a rise. And this is another major theme of the book, about humility. Be humble. We keep encountering these proud, arrogant kings, and the message of the book is, don't be proud, be humble. And Daniel, again, interprets the dream. He understands what the dream is about, this dream where Nebuchadnezzar uh, sees this tree which is kind of bound and locked up, and, uh, and uh, Daniel says, this is about you. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to have a period where you're stripped of your glory, stripped of your power. There's going to be a season when you kind of go mad, and you're going to live out in the wilds. And then at the right time, God will restore you to your sanity and he'll restore you to your kingdom. And all this comes to pass. Nebuchadnezzar is humiliated and then he is again lifted up. And at the end of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's, as he relates this incident, as he tells his people the story of what's happened to him, as he describes how he's moved from being confident and secure, it says in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Everything seemed to be going right. Everything was going well. And then it all got turned upside down. And at the end of this account, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, 
because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What has happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What has happened is that at last he's come to the realization of who he really is because he's seen who God really is. That now at last Nebuchadnezzar sees that he's not the ultimate king, there's a greater king And that greater king has authority and power, even over somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, and he turns in worship to the king. Application for this, who's your boss? Who's king? Who's lord of your life? You're trying to be your own boss, your own lord, your own king? It's not going to work out. It's not going to play well. It's much better to recognize the true king, to walk humbly before him and allow him to lift you up rather than to squash you down. Get to chapter 5, and a different king appears, King Belshazzar. But the same story, in effect, is told again, because King Belshazzar hasn't learned the lesson of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Belshazzar is full of pride, and he's warned of his pride. He has a great party, he has a bit of an orgy, he gets hold of all the, all the stuff that was from the temple in Jerusalem, and parades it before his wives, and his party girls, and his friends, and his People he's trying to impress, and a vision appears which terrifies him again and which Daniel comes and interprets. Daniel interprets the vision, and Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar, honors Daniel because Daniel's shown him what the dream means. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar isn't lifted up. He's struck down. He's killed in a coup, and somebody else replaces him in his position of power. And this is a major theme of the book, The Limits of Earthly Power. Just been praying for our local councils, it's important to do so, but even as we do that, we recognize the limits of earthly power. And whether it's a local councillor, whether it's the President of the United States or the boss of Huawei, all have limited power in the end. None will endure. All will be struck down by sudden intervention or by natural causes None lasts. And this is good news, the limits on earthly power. There's no human authority who can set themselves up eternally. All will be struck down. And it's good to remind ourselves of those limits. That's good news. Watch the news. We're troubled by the madness of human power. All power will come to an end in the end, except the power of God. And then we get to chapter 6 and the famous story of Daniel in the den of lions. We have a different king again, King Darius, but it's the same kind of story. It's a repeat of the story of chapters 1 and chapter 3. It's a question about, Daniel, who are you going to worship? Daniel, who are you going to fear? Now, this is a battle you don't fight once and that's done with. It's not that just once you have to decide, am I going to serve God rather than this thing And that's done. It happens again and again. Again and again throughout our lives as exiles living in Babylon, seeking to be the faithful people of God, this question is going to be asked of us. Who do you most fear? Who or what are you going to worship? It's a question that comes up again and again, and so it's told again and again in the story of Daniel. It's one that he kept facing. It's one that we have to keep facing. It's a a fight we have to keep on fighting. The fight to keep on worshipping God first, and to fearing him above all else. And again, in this story, we see Daniel's integrity. There are people who are hostile to him, and they say, 
we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his gods. That's a great charge to be brought against you. We're never going to find anything we can get him for unless it's to do with his faith. We can get him over that. It's a great model again for us on how to live in exile. If we're going to be accused of anything, let it be for matters of our faith. Now those who are jealous of Daniel hatch a cunning plan. They appeal to the vanity, to the pride of King Darius, and they say, let's have a 30-day festival, and over those 30 days, let's say that nobody in your kingdom is allowed to worship anything other than you, O king. And of course, King Darius says, hey, that is a great idea. Why didn't I think of that myself? Happy days. Now, it would have been so easy for Daniel to compromise on this. It was only a month. It was just 30 days, and he could have just gone quiet. He could have stopped worshiping God. He could have just kind of hidden away, kept out of trouble. But Daniel is a man of integrity who fears God over all and doesn't compromise. And so Daniel refuses both to worship Darius and he keeps on praying to the living God. As a consequence, as his enemies hoped, he's found, he's tried and convicted, and he's thrown to the lions, but God rescues him. And Daniel was lifted up again in the king's presence. And then Darius proclaims the greater kingship of Daniel's God. This is what Darius says. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Yes. What's the lesson of this? The lesson is it's best not to compromise because there are things that we should not compromise on. If you compromise on the stuff you really shouldn't compromise on, you don't get out of trouble. You just get sucked down into the mess. And it's better to get thrown to the lions because you haven't compromised on the things you shouldn't compromise on than to compromise and end up in the muck and the mud with everybody else. Stay true. Great stories, Daniel's 1 to 6. And then it all gets weird, chapter 7. Up to now, it's been kings who've been having dreams and visions. Now it's Daniel who starts having the dreams. And in Daniel chapter 7, it's a dream, a vision, which involves a lion and a bear and a leopard and a tent-horned beast with iron teeth and then a little horn that pops up, which is covered in eyes. And thinking, what on earth is all this about? Actually, it's not weird at all. One of the major goals, as I said, of this series is to help you to read this kind of scripture. This kind of scripture is called apocalyptic. It's a type of uh, genre of scripture, which is found here in Daniel, also found in Revelation, found in the prophecy of Zechariah. And this kind of biblical literature shows earthly circumstances in the light of the supernatural world and what's going to happen in the future. And it shows us that the victory of God has already been achieved over whatever forces seem for now to dominate our world. That's the point. Shows us the, shows us the victory of God. Now, when you came in, you should have got one of these. If you haven't got one, stick up a hand and somebody will come around and give you one. It'll be worth you having one over the course of this series. There's a little chart on this side which helps you to understand what is going on in the book of Daniel. So... Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel, Daniel 8, and Daniel 8, 10 to 12, different dreams and visions. And 
Right-hand side, kingdom, that shows you what kingdom each of these things refer to, and the dates give you an idea of when they happened. So it all ties into that original statue, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, the head of gold and the chest of silver and the belly of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of clay. Uh, so if you have that, that will help you as we go through to understand what is going on. And Daniel's dream here in Daniel chapter 7 mirrors Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue with four parts. Here Daniel has a vision of four different beasts, and those four different beasts represent the same four kingdoms. The Babylonian kingdom, the Meso-Persian kingdom, the, the, the Greek kingdom, and the kingdom of Rome, and all that comes after it. It's a vision that scares Daniel, but in the midst of it he sees the Ancient of Days. This is God himself. And then he sees one who's described as one like a son of man. And this is Jesus. And uh, you need to understand Daniel to understand Jesus. Because when we get to the story of Jesus, uh, Jesus talks about himself as the son of man and kind of quotes from the book of Daniel. So in Mark 14, at his trial, this happened. The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The vision that Daniel has is of Jesus coming, the King coming, the kingdom coming. All other kingdoms will fall before the King and his kingdom. That's what the visions are about. So there's all kinds of stuff in the visions which seem really weird, but that's what it is about. God is King. And even in a world where there are monsters with iron teeth. And you look at our world, you look at world history, you think about the monsters of the past, some of the Roman empires, you think about monsters of our history, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Maos, you think about some current rulers, they look like monsters with iron teeth, but God will get the victory and his people will be carried into victory. That's what the visions are about. Chapter 8. Daniel has another vision. This is of a ram and a goat and horns. And then the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel to interpret the vision. And the ram in this case is the Medo-Persian kingdom. And the goat is the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the Greek kingdom. And then there's a little horn that comes up. And this is Antiochus IV, who was a monster of a man who severely persecuted the Jews and desecrated the temple. And uh, there's a coin with his face and an inscription on it which says, King Antiochus, God manifest bearer of victory. That was a claim he made about himself. And as Daniel in his vision sees this man coming into power, the point is that his rule will not endure because God will have the victory. And a major theme, again, which comes out of this book is that God won't allow his people to be persecuted for one day beyond what they can bear. There is going to be hardship. There's going to be suffering. But God won't allow his people to suffer for one day longer than they can bear. And then we get to chapter 9, and here Daniel prays. He reads the Bible, he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah prophesies that there will be an exile, which Daniel is in for a period of 70 years. And in response to, Daniel's prophecy, uh, to Jeremiah's prophecy, Daniel begins to pray. And a major theme of this book is about prayer. It's a major theme of this book, prayer. And Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 is a model for us of how to pray. It's a model of repentance, and it's a model of boldness, and it's a model of faith. 
And the application for us is clear that prayer is important and prayer is powerful. So on Friday, we call the church to pray. Pray, because it's powerful and it's important. And then we get to the end of the book, chapters 10 to 12, and Daniel has another vision. And this vision again tells the tale of the different kingdoms, describes a struggle a human struggle as kings and empires rise and fall. Also describes a spiritual struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. But this is a struggle in which there can only be one outcome. This is the theme. Conflict is normal for the people of God, but victory is certain. Christian life is not like a battle. It is a battle. We're called into a spiritual battle. Our battle is not against against flesh and blood, it's against the principalities and the powers. That battle is real, but victory is certain. And so Daniel begins chapter 1 in exile. Him and his friends carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. It ends in Exodus, the promise of deliverance, the promise of rescue. At the end, the faithful people of God will receive their inheritance. That's how the book finishes, apply to Daniel himself. Verse 13 of chapter 12, Daniel, go your way till the end. You will rest, and at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. There's going to be rescue for you. So what does Daniel teach us? Daniel teaches us about the reality of our exile, that The world as it now is, is not our home. We're not living in Jerusalem, we're living in Babylon. We need to wise up to that. It teaches us to live with integrity, to live purely before our pure God. It teaches us to live with resolve. Resolve not to bend to the flow of the times. Resolve to stand firm in your integrity in God. It teaches us about the kind of attitude that we're to have towards the Lord and towards life. It should be an attitude where we are humble rather than proud an attitude of worship of the living God and that we're to be a people of prayer. The book of Daniel teaches us about the sovereignty of God, that there is a king and God is that king. And there's a kingdom which is breaking out and no other kingdom will stand against it. The book of Daniel teaches us that, yes, we're going to experience conflict and difficulty, but in the end, victory is certain. It's a great book. Hope that God speaks to us powerfully through it over these next few weeks. Amen. Why don't we stand together and pray? And uh, as we did at the beginning, I'd like us to pray together, me saying a phrase and you repeating it after me. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we receive your word. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it. Help us to proclaim it. For your glory and for our good. Amen.